This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Television, radio, movies, 
where you sit in a chair, it was 25 years ago, you sat in a chair and it happened to you. You couldn't control it in any way. And I started calling those uh, producer-driven media. And what I realized was that uh, what was happening was we were putting a microprocessor in between um, the user and all this audio and video, and that that was inevitably going to transform traditionally producer-driven media into user-driven media. So that, um, so that um, the fact that, to me it was crucial that, this, that, that the user could control this. Not that, because it, it was actually very dense information in there about how to change your oil pan. If, it, if you only have one chance to watch it, like a television program, then you had to go to the next page. It wouldn't be very useful for learning. The fact that the user could actually control it made all the difference in the world. Because suddenly you could start to become an active um, uh, reader of audiovisual material the way that you're an active reader of books. But if you have to read the same paragraph over and over again, you can do it suddenly if that paragraph consists of video or audio. Um, so, so I went to. I, I went to work with Alan actually uh, for a year and a half, and we tried to take these these ideas I had developed for Britannica about the encyclopedia of the future. And these are just some drawings I just found them that Alan and I commissioned in 1981 by a, an artist at uh, Disney, Glenn Keane. And I'm, I'm showing them maybe because they're fun, but also point. These are th these are scenarios of how the encyclopedia of the future would be used. And these are children who are walking around with the encyclopedia, each one of them with an encyclopedia in their hand. And the intelligent encyclopedia, we assumed you'd be able to ask questions of it and get answers. And that's what these kids are doing, basically. They're posing questions into the encyclopedia and getting answers back out of the, the database. This was a couple who had just been an earthquake. And for some God knows, God knows reason, they were turning to the encyclopedia to find out what to do. Um, this was a businessman, a rancher uh, in California who at the time noticed that the wine business was going south and he was wondering if he could possibly convert his land to um, rice growing for sake. And this was a father giving his son the inevitable 60s tour of rock and roll. And this was a mother with her two children in the tide pools of Laguna, um, sort of looking at things the tide pool would answer the questions. I, I'm, I actually, I noticed there's a, a little um, antenna there. So this is 1981, and we sort of imagined that the encyclopedia would be wireless. Uh, I don't know how we figured that out then, but um, it must have been Alan, not me. But the, uh, but, let's see, one more here. Okay, this is a sort of, this is an architect in New York um, studying Asian motif for a building he's working on a while, a teacher in Tokyo is teaching her class about Western architecture. Now, there's no relationship between these two except sort of the architecture issue is sort of line. It's just a twofer. But what's interesting about all of these illustrations is that they all basically show people accessing a frozen archive that has been put on to a, you know, to a, to a distribution network somehow. Even here, there's no suggestion whatsoever that there's any communication between these two people. You know, this class is not asking 
this, this architect uh, about, about buildings in New York? There's no idea whatsoever that, uh, that, that, that the book is anything other than a frozen object. Um, so shortly after that, in the, in the early 80s, I, I was able to start a company to sort of make things um, that basically were multimedia books. This was something I made in the late 80s with a professor at UCLA, Robert Winter. It was sort of an attempt to make it possible to understand everything about the Rite of Spring. In Stravinsky, Rite of Spring, renowned music scholar Robert Winter takes you inside the work that marked the beginning of the modern age in music. If you've ever seen Walt Disney's Fantasia, then you've heard the music of Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring accompanying lumbering dinosaurs. And if you've seen the movie Jaws, then you've heard the influence of Stravinsky's style in the Rite on leading film composers like John Williams Indeed, it's hard to imagine what 20th century culture would be like if this work had never been written. Winter's insightful commentary includes a continuous, real-time explanation of each passage, with options for listening to the instruments in the orchestra individually. Winters also introduces you to the musical concepts behind the Rite of Spring using a variety of creative techniques. And when you're finished with the program, up to four players can test their knowledge of Stravinsky by playing the right game. Bravo, bravo. That would have been 89. Actually, let me explain this before I show it. The, the, I, I walked into a bookstore at Cambridge once and saw this uh, book that had just been published by Knopf, Who Built America. And it was a, one of the most beautifully illustrated books I'd ever, history books I'd ever seen. And it was, it was written from a populist perspective, and I was sort of excited about it. So I went to the, I found the authors, and I said, how would you like to make an electronic version? And um, they were actually into it. But we spent a year and a half, I think, talking about why bother to make it electronic and what, what, what value could we bring to it. And the sort of the, the conceptual breakthrough that we made was when we, we started to think about, you know when you're in third grade and the, you, you, your history, your, your, not history, your, your third grade teacher gives you a, your first history textbook and the implication is that here's the truth and if you're lucky, you figure it out by the time you're older that it wasn't the truth. It was just sort of one person's sort of idea of what the truth might be. So we, we realized that a history book is really a, a synthesis of, of the author's reading of original source documents, conversations with colleagues, other books they've read, et cetera, et cetera. And wouldn't it be nifty if we could make that, that much more transparent? 
So we decided, what we decided to do was, in, we took their original book, or they took their original book, and we added to it uh, several thousand source documents, um, which we thought would have the effect of sort of letting the reader be in sort of this interesting sort of one-way um, discussion with the author. Um, you know, because the author would say something, make a, make a statement, the reader could then look at the documents that the author had, had, had worked from and could make, you know, come, come to some conclusion of their own. Explore U.S. history as never before with this groundbreaking CD-ROM. Combining historical video, photographs, documents, and archival audio tracks with the text of their critically acclaimed book, the authors of Who Built America take you behind the printed page, back in time to a crucial period in American history. The core of this exhaustively researched book is a narrative which examines the period from the centennial celebration of 1876 to the Great War of 1914. Hundreds of high-quality, fully-captioned photographs, prints, paintings, and posters illustrate the main text. 200 excursions take you behind the narrative to hundreds of primary research documents that enhance the main text. The excursion on the Triangle Fire of 1911 includes newspaper articles, photographs and drawings, poems, and audio recordings. It was very, very hard work. And it was in a terrible, terrible sweatshop. It was absolutely unbearable. The doors were locked. No fire escape. Other excursions offer a more lighthearted look at America's past. Anyway, that's enough of that. Um, so we made a whole lot of these things. And then the problem with, one of the problems is from the point of view of being a publisher was that for the, for Who Built America and for the Stravinsky, each of those projects took a really fabulous sort of world-class programmer over a year to put together. And I didn't like this for two reasons. First of all, it meant that you had to have a really world-class programmer around and pay them a lot of money, which often made these things more expensive than you could actually ever recover from the marketplace. But in, in a deeper, more problematic way, the author who actually held the subject matter close to her heart wasn't involved in, the, in some of the most creative aspects of the project. Um, so I really felt it was, really wanted to uh, change things and make tools that would enable authors, creative people, to work more directly in the medium, at least to do the first draft they do with a, like with a book. Even if they were going to give it over to a publisher to illustrate or to, to lay out, um, the author should be able to do a lot more of the heavy lifting. So. Um, Around the same time as Who Built America, about in the early 90s, we started a project to make tools that would let authors do these sort of things, to assemble some rich, multi, you know, complex, robust, multimedia documents. And um, about five years ago, we put out a set of tools called TK3, which actually is sort of the first time we got really close to what we wanted. And I, I'm going to show you some examples of things that people have made with these. This is a book by a teacher at a high school in New York, teaches a class on the Bauhaus. Um, there wasn't, uh, he, he couldn't get it, he didn't have a textbook on the Bauhaus for his students. So he went to the internet and uh, gathered all this material and built this himself. 
and he put in links to the internet, into the book. Um, he put in uh, uh, videos. Um, there are, he built this very beautiful table of, um, of graphical table of contents. Um, everything uh, has a blow up. I, but you have to understand, this is, this is an art teacher. I promise you he couldn't program his way out of a paper bag, but he could do this and, and did. Um, you know, I think it was done over the course of a month or so. But I mean, here, here's some, I mean, I, I failed physics for poets, so I'm, I'm also not a programmer, but I'm, I made this in about an hour and a half, two hours maybe. Um, the, imagine that all these songs have, have the controllers. Um, Verve put out, Verve gave a bunch of their music to some DJs to remix, and they very intelligently put out the exact same songs in the same order in unmixed version. So I bought both because I wanted to compare them. So here's the unmixed version of Spanish Greece. And the remixed version of Spanish Greece. I mean, it probably took me half an hour to put the program together. It took me an hour to mix all the CDs and, you know, it. Um, this was uh, something made by the Museum of Natural History. Uh, it's something that they give to, uh, to teachers who are bringing the cl their classes there so to prepare the teachers for the, um, uh, for the visit. And there's a whole bunch of videos on here where the curators discuss various aspects of the collection. In 1911, on a major expedition. Um, this is a, this is another high school project. Teacher, it's a high, it's a, for a high-end Spanish class, and high-level Spanish class, and the teacher's from Colombia. So she went to Colombia, and she took a bunch of photos and collected others out of magazines of a group of children living in one of the areas controlled by the FARC, one of the revolutionary groups in Colombia. And these are students in New York. And she collected interviews, written interviews by all the students in Colombia. So she then came back and she, she assembled this. And this is a project. Each one of the students in her class was given this, uh, uh, this book, as it were. And e each student actually got a different book. Because what they got was, this is just the, intro the introduction to the project. Each student in New York got an essay by a different kid in Columbia. This is the original essay that was written by this girl. And the first task of the student in New York was to take, take, take the essay, to correct its grammar and translate it. So the teacher gets some sense of the student's translation abilities and grammar abilities. Then the student in New York had to write an essay about how he understood the difference in the life of the person in Colombia or how it contrasted to his own life and he had to write that in Spanish and then he had to uh, record it so that the teacher could hear his, uh, his oral abilities and for extra credit this particular student um, did an interview uh, with somebody from Colombia. So at the end of the class the teacher got uh, 15 thumb drives, each one with a book on it. And uh, her, she, she, she's been using TK3 now for three years in her classes. And um, 
the, the, the stories are just fabulous that all these, you know, these kids are you know, graduating and still coming back and working on their projects. We've heard that over and over and over again from teachers at high school and college level that, that the, not only is the enthusiasm on the students' part tremendous to be working in this medium, but the quality is better. Um, I think it's probably a short-term effect, but for right now, we find that, that young people are very excited about being able to express themselves in the more complex language that they, are, that they, that they live in. It was audio and video is such a big part of their life that being able to use it in their, um, in their own uh, work seems to, it seems to be, uh, be highly motivating at the moment. The other thing, this is, and this is a uh, professor at USC who was using, this in a, using these tools in a history class, he discovered that uh, he was teaching a class on cinema, history and cinema, and each of the students had to, um, I wonder if I have that on here. Um, each of the students, I don't, had to write a paper uh, analyzing the historical accuracy of a particular film, and they, and they used clips from the, from the film in their paper, and Claudio, the professor told me, that Claudio Fogu said that the quality of the writing was so much better than he'd ever seen in any of his classes before. And he was convinced, and I'm pretty sure he's right, that it had to do with the fact that we'd made a template for the students to put their essays into. And the template looked like a professionally published document. And it was something about, it just the students wrote up to the form, um, which was uh, pretty exciting for everybody. Yeah. You're, you're sitting there using, standing there using a Macintosh. Makes me think that TT3 must have been written for the Macintosh. No, it was actually written for Windows. Windows? But, the, but the interesting story is that Microsoft was our principal investor. And when we finished the software, I went back to Microsoft for another round of money to bring it to market. They said they'd only give us more money if we dropped the Macintosh version. So we dropped Microsoft instead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although that, that was one of the sort of Pyrrhic victories because actually when you, not that anybody here cares about this actually, but if Microsoft is your partner and you don't get along with them, nobody else will work with you because they're so afraid of Microsoft. Well, so what became the future of Well, both versions sort of became orphans. We gave them to the people to use, but it never, it never got, it never, it was never brought to market, um, sadly. Um, the, I mean, the, 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 You're saying that's only three years ago. So five years ago. Five years ago. Yeah. So the code is just sort of withered and died. No, it's. I mean, it, it's. I mean, there are still places where it gets used. You know, teachers whom we've given it to who use it extensively, but it never got adopted anywhere. You never, it never got marketed in, in any significant way. Yeah. So can it be downloaded? Yeah, you can download it for, if you. I'll. Yeah, but I'll give you a better, yeah, you can get it from my kitchen. I mean, that, that's where it is. That's sort of, been, that's a website, it's, sort of an op, it's a ghost website, it's been operating for five years on its own. So TK3 is now known as Nightkitchen? Nightkitchen was the company that developed TK3. Um, so this is where I really get humble and embarrassed, okay? <laughs> so 12 years after some of these things, as in like fall of 2004, um, 
I'm going on a bus to Cornell to give a talk, and I have sort of the second aha experience of, you know, 23 years later. Um, it's all about the network. I mean, I don't know how I could have missed this, how it took me so long to get to, get to this point. But um, suddenly I realized that having audio and video in books is really cool. It's really useful. It, it, it's a good thing. We should have it. But the locating books inside of a network is a much more profound development, which we don't necessarily you know, understand the implications of, but that mainly where it led to was things not being frozen anymore. That what, what happens when a book, uh, well, well let's, I'll, I'll show stuff. Um, so I, I started right there on the bus in preparation for my talk an hour later, I started a thought experiment. So, um, Marx and Engels wrote this thing in 1848, 158 years ago, um, 50 pages about, um, had a reasonably large impact. Um, this was the first paragraph or first page. It's still the first page all these years later. Um, but what would, what, what, what would have happened if it was published today? Well, for starters, uh, you'd have comments. <laughs> Over 158 years, I don't know, 100,000 comments, 2 million comments, a lot of comments. Um, more than you could really, any one human would ever get their head around. This already becomes a really sort of um, headache uh, producing uh, reality, you know, realization when you think about a corpus that isn't just uh, 50 pages, but 500,000 pages. How do you give anybody actually useful access to that? Um, you know, if you, and you, you know, every few years Marx and Engels might have come along and they might have actually read the comments and then sort of updated it. Uh, there'd be all kinds of links to other people's sites where they have alternative ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, think of a, a sort of something, you know, accreting over time where it just sort of gets like an oyster shell, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, this is a huge non-trivial conceptual problem, how do you give people useful access to it, which we haven't solved yet. Um, I mean, we meaning all of us. Uh, hopefully we will. Um, but we, you know, going further, we assume that not only would have comments, but, you know, why shouldn't there be a chat window inside of a book? We, we use the book at the institute where I work to mean, uh, metaphorically, it's the, uh, the object that humans use to move big ideas around society. And the reason why we move big ideas around is so that we can have a conversation about it. And so, I mean, I do think about books as a, a mechanism for enabling uh, discussion about things that are important. And so then it occurred to me, so why, if you're reading the Communist Manifesto, why shouldn't you have a little buddy list that everybody else is reading it at the same time so that if something is bothering you or questioning, you can talk, start talking to people? about it. You know, the authors can be there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This idea of a networked book and what it means is something that we're exploring sort of in a major way. And I, I'm going to show you a couple of interim steps that we're sort of involved in at the moment, things that are sort of small enough that we actually can get our head around it. Um, we're working with a professor at, uh, at NYU, Mitchell Stevens. He's, Mitchell's writing a book about um, his, the history of uh, atheism. And so we, we suggested to him, so why don't you, um, 
why don't you do this in public? Why don't you start writing your, he started his book in January and he started doing research and so he now blogs every day about what he's reading, what he's thinking about, asking people and he's getting back remarkably intelligent uh, comments from people and so what we think is happening here is that we're rejiggering the, relation, the, the, the normal run of things as far as readers and authors. Normally you write a book, you publish it, you get an audience, maybe somebody sends you a couple of letters, and you're done, you go on to the next one. Um, we figure, gee, why not let the readers be involved right from the beginning, and with the theory that not only, well, with, with the theory that the book's going to be better in the long run, because the people who are interested in the subject matter, his eventual readers, are working alongside him and, and, and thinking things, things out. Um, I understand a lot of authors don't want to work this way. Um, and I'm not saying you should necessarily, but I think it's a very interesting thing to, to be doing. And his book, I, I think Mitchell is complete, he was suspicious at first, but he's quite convinced now that his book is going to be better. His, his, his publisher was horrified at the idea, um, at thinking that it would cannibalize his sales. Um, I think even the publisher now realizes that in, in all likelihood it's going to build an audience for the book before it's published and the sales will probably even be, be better. Um, I think to me this is, a, this, is a, this is a project where he actually is going to do a printed book. In the long, long run I can imagine you know, the, where the, there is no, never a print version. It's always electronic and it's sort of never finished. It's, it's, uh, you subs you'll subscribe to a book, not buy a book. Um, because it will, con it'll con you'll, you'll be interested, even if the author doesn't make changes, you'll be interested in the discussion that occurs around the book. Um, another example, this is a uh, Mackenzie Wark, um, did the book a few years ago at Harvard University Press uh, called A Hacker Manifesto. And his new book is on video games and video game theory. And this is just a little, little, little mock-up we did in the office with some with a bright neo-made toy that we have around. Mackenzie writes, writes books in interesting ways. He, each page is a, well, I don't know if he's, he writes it in paragraphs. The, the book has no um, page numbers. Each paragraph is numbered. The book has nine chapters. Each chapter has five sections. Each section has 25 paragraphs. So these are the five paragraphs in this section. And what Mackenzie asks them, which I think is going to turn out to be a profound step, is he asks, I want the comments not to be below and hidden from my text. I want the comments, I want the reader's comments to be equal uh, to, my, to my text. And um, so this is a, a prototype of what we're doing with Mackenzie. Because um, he's actually going to publish, in his case, the book is mostly written, but he's going to publish it first with us um, before it goes out into print form. So if I go to this paragraph, so the, the comments are always there. Um, this, this sort of, uh, well, it's, not, it's the opposite of privileging, but this is sort of e uh, equality between author and reader uh, in such a clear, sort of stark visual sense. Um, I, I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to make a, a, a very, um, 
I'm hoping it'll make a splash when it comes out. I guess as you get older and you get worried, you have the hog experiences come quicker. So I have one more. Um, and uh, th there have been two big criticisms of my work over the last 25 years. And uh, they've been consistent. One is that it's too linear. Um, and that it privileges uh, text over everything else. And well, one is that, no, actually, I'm sorry, I'm conflating. One is that it's too linear. And um, I don't know, I, yes, it's true. Um, I started out with uh, books as my model, and then we went to something called HyperCard, which was basically a bunch of uh, index cards that were laid out linearly. And you, I always knew you could sort of fool people into thinking it wasn't linear, but I knew it was linear. It was just cards laid out. Um, and I didn't have, I'd never seen a better idea. It wasn't that I was a wasn't that I love linearity, it was that I, nobody ever shown me a better form, so I hadn't ever gotten anywhere. And the other criticism was privileging text over, over uh, video, which I actually, it wasn't so much that I cared more about text, it was that I didn't want to give text up. And I knew that, um, I have an example of this? I don't. Um, but, you know, if, if you have a, a, if I have a screen here, and I've got a whole bunch of text, and i got a video window, when we first started doing video, it was that little quick time window, there's some size of a post-it. <clears throat> and the first question everybody asked was, gee, can you make that bigger? And the answer was, well, thank heavens, actually, right now, I can't make it bigger. But be careful about what you wish for, because if I make this bigger, it's going to push the text off the screen. And I hated that idea, and I really didn't want to, um, so I kept privileging text as long as I could in order not to sort of uh, push it off the screen. Um, we did come up with an interim solution, which I'll actually, there's an example of that in a minute, but um, uh, again, didn't have a really good idea about how to do it, how to, how, how to have text and video really be equal on the screen. Um, so remember, you remember this? Made for a nine-inch screen, black and white. And Robert Winter, who did that, I don't, know if, I don't want to call it up again, but if you'll remember, there was, there was a lot of information in that, little, in that little window. And Robert Winter once said, it was like writing across between Doonesbury and War and Peace. War and Peace because it was actually serious. Doonesbury because he only had that sort of little sort of bubble to write in. Um, this was, I don't know, probably 500 cards laid out in chapters, and it was extremely linear. Um, so long story, which I won't go into, but I was sitting around with a bunch of programmers last summer trying to noodle out a problem we were dealing with, and I suddenly realized, oh, I did have this picture here, that um, there was another way to do this. And that was this. Uh, why not take all the parts which did not, which didn't have, to, which there was no reason why they were going in a linear direction. We just happened to lay them out that way. So why not put them all on the screen at the same time and allow people to, to zoom into them and you know, make it bigger if they wanted to look at that particular portion. Um, and this, this has a, this is a web, this is a browser window actually in, on, the, on this canvas. 
Um, that's a chat window in here. Um, this is um, a video. Everyone knows that there are more than one kind of memory. Or is it there is more than one kind of memory? <laughs> I give up. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, the, um, I, I, don't, I don't mean to frighten everybody. This is something I just sort of pulled together in a few moments. The point being that when we started with that tiny little screen, we couldn't do anything more than this. It was hard just doing that. But suddenly, with everybody having much larger devices that we walk around with, with much higher resolution, the real estate changes dramatically. Actually, this, this, this whole idea came to me because th this meeting I was, took place the day after Apple came out with their widgets. And I, it, was, it was absolutely looking at, you know, playing with these widgets instead of I suddenly had this idea that, wait a minute, we could have all these separate windows that can be linked to each other um, uh, in a canvas uh, like this. So with the software we're doing now, which is called Sophie, and I'll give you uh, a little taste of it in a second, um, you'll be able to make ordinary uh, linear projects, you know, a number of pages, but we're also, and most people will do that at first, we're also going to enable this sort of canvas idea which basically does away with the spine. The spine no longer needs to be the organizing principle of, of, a, of a bunch of material. You now can have something much more like uh, a, a graphical desktop. Um, and I, I know that for most people this sounds like an incredibly tiny um, difference, but my instinct is that over the next 50 years uh, it's going to be profound in terms of how we sort of start to look at um, the organization of the contents of intellectual uh, discourse. Um, which does bring us to Sophie. Um, Sophie is the uh, follow-on to TK3. Um, its main difference from TK3 uh, is one, Sophie first and foremost is a, net, is a network animal. Sophie documents uh, understand the network and increasingly will um, be ad ad adopted both in their making and in their reading to the network. And secondly, Sophie affords time-based events. Uh, like that Robert Winter thing when he does the counting, one, two, three, one, two, three, right? The, the, the animation had to be synced up with the sound. That kind of a time, TK3 couldn't handle that. Uh, Sophie can. Um, and in fact, um, I, 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 this is this will be a quick demo, and I don't know if people here, because I don't know exactly what parts of Stanford you're all coming from. This may be less or more or less interesting to some people. I'm just, please assume that you can make the most beautiful documents you ever have seen on a computer with Sophie, in terms of laying out text and pictures and everything else. Just, um, I just want to show you making, doing something that, Ever since we did that program with Robert in 1980, the first one in 1987, um, I've been dying to do this. And for the first, I did it for the first time the other day in Amsterdam, and this is the third time I did it at Duke last week. Um, I'm going to make a new book, and 
I'm going to drag a whole folder of stuff into that book. And then I'm going to start putting stuff on a page. This is a movie. And by the way, this is a pre-alpha. This is not, you know, the, the user interface is going to work this way. It may not look this way. Um, let me get another movie here. That's the one. Oh, actually, I'll put this one over here. Uh, I've got Minsky over here. Um, let me get some text. Um, let's see. So this is a stand in for some really interesting text and change that to um, by the way, if, if anybody here is actually a um, geeky sort of person this is done in uh, squeak which is a, a small talk environment um, one really one I don't know if you noticed what just happened but you know, normally if I want to change the font I'd have to go up from one of those horrible Microsoft word, you know um, strips and find the find what I needed to find um, what's really nice about squeak in general and Sophie in particular is that every everything is an object is an object and every object is, has its own sort of halo in this case we call it a heads-up display and so all the everything I want to change about this text is right here um, I can actually move that if I want to uh, it's a very intuitive and lovely way to work. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to get a timeline. So this is what I haven't been able to do ever until just now. I'm going to start with this film and I'm going to bring it up into the timeline. And then I'm going to get this film and I'm going to bring it up into the timeline. And then I'm going to get this first star and bring it out. And I'm going to have that be on the screen for that long. And I'm going to get the second star, and I'm going to bring it out at the end here. And then I've got this other movie, and I think I'll bring that out here. And actually, I'll move it down here a little bit. And then I've got this... Uh, this text, and I'm going to bring the text out here, and I'll extend that for a while. And I've got this little star, and I think I'll just make these two contiguous. And let me turn off the frames, let me uh, rewind this. And we make this go away. And I'm going to play this timeline. I, I know that that looks trivial to everybody. Um, that's good. It should. Um, but, but, but normally to do that, you've got to go to school for a while and really learn some complicated, expensive programming. Um, being able to put that kind of power in sort of ordinary humans' hands, to me, is very exciting. I think that it's... It, it, we, if, if, these, 
you know, if Sophie really works, it, it looks like we might have the opportunity to, to really start to open up the digital expression to a much wider group of, 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 of authors and creative people. This, by the way, is, uh, Sophie is entirely funded by the Mellon Foundation. It's part of Mellon's uh, extremely ambitious and frankly romantic vision of having universities build their own digital infrastructure, all the way from sort of very bottom down uh, plumbing kind of stuff to all the way to high end tools like we're working on. And um, uh, so it, it, Sophie's coming out this spring. Um, and if anybody, you know, wants to, it should be in beta form sometime later. So Sophie comes out this summer. The beta, beta should be available in about May 1st. So anybody who's interested can contact me. And I'd love to answer questions or have a, actually I'd like to have a discussion if anybody would like. Yeah. That's right. I just dragged a folder full of clips. So yeah. Clip yeah. In fact, you can do better than that. You can have a clip on somebody else's server and put it into. I mean, so Sophie has the ability to to reference remote objects as if they were local. Bob at futureofthebook.org. Any questions? Yeah. Paragraph there, paragraph there, 
remix things as you wanted to. Uh -huh. The remix culture that we have now is actually the standard, and that is a that brief blip of time when we have authoritative, what I call frozen texts. That wasn't meant to comment so much on the on the process of reading, which I don't think is frozen at all. I mean, it's a general process. Right? I agree 100. Yeah. But I, I don't. I don't have. A, I mean. I'm one of those people who doesn't think it's... I sort of want to sort of pull off the time of making decisions <clears throat> as long as we can. Right. And so I'm trying to put out tools that are open-ended enough. I mean, you know, it's, it's the reason why I work with people like, like Ken Mark, because he comes in and he says, wow, why don't we make comments the same level as, wow. as the writing? Right, so you know, we, can, you know, we can go around and sort of get something together that does that. Uh -huh. And I, I think, we, you know, we're... We need many, 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 many iterations of ideas to come up with new forms. And the reason why we call these things Institute for the Future of the Book is not because I think that it's because we're not working. You know, we, have, we have no idea what this object is or what this thing is that people are, what, what the vehicle for moving big ideas around is going to be 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, this is, you know, in the midst of this tremendously experimental phase and you know, I, I see all of my work and my colleagues as the hardest to burn. Yes? Um, about the, the idea of the comments, um, you know, obviously you probably spent many, many hours on web forms as am I, and, and having the comments equal to the authoritative text, supposedly. I mean, most of what I do when I go to forums is try to find forms that cut out most of the people who want to participate in the course because a lot of it is, is is not something I want to read. And so, you know, what I have found often is that I'm now going to paid forums where you have to join and pay money in order to be part of a certain community. And how how do you you know, you know it's, it's one of these things where we're I'm agnostic on that. You know, I mean yeah. I mean for Kent for for Mitchell's blog we thought we were going to, especially it's about atheism, we thought we were going to be inundated by weird, you know, right between Christian fundamentalists. Not nothing. Yeah, not that's that functional. I, I understand. You know, but we were prepared and still are to start to moderate the comments. You know, we're actually, I'm not, just because the comments are equal to the, to the author's text doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that from our perspective, that we're going to let anybody say anything. Yeah, I'm sure we'll moderate Ken's when it comes out. And but I, but I, that's how we're going to do it. I think somebody else could decide they don't want to do it that way and let anybody say anything. I, I, again, I just think this is the time for letting letting a hundred you know, flowers bloom. Basically. You know what happened after that room, don't you? Flowers that would bloom in this environment. Um, as I understand it, that Sophie is a, what you might call a network poet. Um, have you looked at. Well, it enables it. It enables it. In, in which case, have you looked at uh, how it may be archived and whether we're going to be lost in the labyrinth of brutalized data? A couple of things. Um, 
One of the reasons why we chose to do this small talk, and I'm not a programmer, so I can't explain why this is true, was that theoretically um, these documents might actually last for a long time um, because of the file structure, et cetera, et cetera. The, the idea of the weeded social document 100 years from now. As far as the Googleization of all data, that's a social question, not a technical one. And you know, if we all decide to let Google run our lives for us, don't get me started. Actually, don't get me started. Not, well, but, but there's a there's a there's a simple library issue here. Uh, it, that being a sense that for our analog books that we have to create libraries for it. How are we going to create a well, library? Well, we're, we're, we're developing something called a Sophie server that enables people to put all their books, in any book that's, anything that's named Sophie can go up on a Sophie server, and Stanford can have its own, et cetera, or the department at Stanford can have its own Sophie server. Um, clearly, there's the idea that people will be able to search all Sophie books, you'll be able to link between Sophie books, you'll be able to, in your book, you'll be able to link to, to her book, et cetera. Um, you know, the expectation is that Google will um, uh, will read these books, that they'll be searchable. Um, whether, you know, whether that's a good idea or not. Whether Google's a good idea or not is so yeah. another question. I, I don't have an answer to. But we are trying to, we are conceiving Sophie as, a, as something that makes documents that have longevity, that are archivable, that are linkable, and that um, as I mentioned before, you know, where a Sophie book can be constructed out of uh, parts from all over the net. Um, actually, in this time. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.